Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Willie, Willie, Harry. I'll stop there because that's where we're up to in my personal history of the English monarchy. Now, I say English, but technically, if we run from William the Conqueror up to Charles III, which is how this series works, the English monarchs officially become British monarchs as England unites with Wales and Scotland. And ultimately, they become monarchs of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland to give them their full title. But that's a bit of a mouthful. So I'm going to be calling them simply English monarchs. I can't say this is the story of the British monarchy because whilst I'm going to be touching on the various kings of Wales and Scotland before unification, I don't have the time or space to incorporate all their stories into this series. And I say it's my take on it because I am not a historian. I am a fan and interested in finding out more and interested in sharing it with you. And we've been looking at what happened after the Norman Conquest. Uh, William the Conqueror came over in 1066 and the, the fallout from that and sibling rivalry between his three surviving sons, Robert Shortpants, the oldest, William, who became William II, William Rufus, and the younger brother, Henry, who at the end of the last episode we saw Probably, I'll say, I'm going with a sensationalist approach, I'll say he definitely had his brother William bumped off in a staged hunting accident, allowing he himself to take the throne. Um, and if you look at what had gone on between the brothers, the idea that this was uh, a planned assassination is, is not wildly unlikely. The three brothers had spent their whole lives fighting against each other. And often William and Robert had ganged up on Henry, the younger brother, and taken lands from him that he'd been previously granted, generally giving him a hard time. And he was expecting to inherit nothing, really. Uh, everything would normally have gone to the eldest son. As we saw, Robert got Normandy and William got England, uh, which led to constant conflict as the two really needed to be either completely separated or totally combined. And it was Henry who unexpectedly nipped in from behind while Robert was away crusading, gets William out of the way, takes the throne and is sitting there when Robert returns, not sitting desperately comfortably, because not only, as, as we've seen, was there strife caused by these brothers constantly having a go at each other there was always threats from elsewhere 
In the north there was Scotland and the Scottish kings repeatedly tried to expand southwards into, into northern England. And whenever there was any unrest in England, any sense that the king might be losing their grip or that their attention might be focused elsewhere and they may be overseas campaigning, the Scottish would often take the opportunity to invade from the north. In the west, there was Wales, which is where many of the English Celts ended up when the Saxons invaded. And the Welsh were pretty tough, and William I and William II had both made incursions into, into Wales. Um, not terribly successfully, they had built some castles in the south, they had set up these lords who were known as marcher lords, tough guys with big castles to kind of defend the borders. And the Normans went in and were usually repelled by the Welsh, particularly as the Welsh had this secret weapon the, the longbow, which was as, as tall as a man and required immense upper body strength to to actually use, to, to pull the string back, and required constant practice and training. But the Welsh were particularly good at it later on through the Middle Ages when English armies went into France, such as uh, Henry V uh, at Agincourt. Many of the archers were Welsh. There were contingents of Welsh archers. And there are tales of Norman armies going into Wales and the officer leading the troops would suddenly find that his right leg was pinned to his horse through the saddle by an arrow fired with immense power. And as he turns round to flee, another arrow pins his left leg to his horse on the other side. So the Welsh didn't take kindly to the Normans coming into their territory. But unlike the Scottish, the Welsh very rarely made any attempts to break out of Wales and attack England, although they would very often attack Norman castles within Wales. And then to the east of England, there was always a constant threat from what I'm calling in this series the Vikings. And as we saw in our second episode, for large periods before the Norman invasion, the Vikings had ruled much of northern England from their capital in York. And under King Canute and his sons, they'd ruled the whole of the country. So there was a constant threat that they might come back and invade again. And then in the south, there is these ongoing territorial battles between all these French territories, nominally under the rule of the French king, but the French king didn't have huge amounts of power. So it was down to local lords and dukes who were in charge of these places, and they were all constantly fighting each other. We have seen how William the Conqueror's sons made alliances with their neighbours. They then broke the alliances. They were constantly killing each other and sacking each other's cities. And this didn't stop. In fact, it probably got worse once Henry took the throne because there was this feeling that uh, Henry wasn't really the rightful heir to the throne. And his older brother, Robert Shortpants, was one of the people who wanted to replace him. So he's come back from the Crusades and found that his brother William Rufus is dead and his little brother Henry has taken the crown. And Robert's constantly plotting, raising armies, disputing Henry's reign, but he's pretty ineffectual. And eventually Henry says, enough is enough. He manages to take a large army across the water and into Normandy and he attacks and defeats Robert at the Battle of Tonchebray. Robert had been holed up in the castle there, but he decided for one last reckless throw of the dice and charged out with his knights and was comprehensively beaten by Henry. Robert does not seem to have been the greatest uh, military leader. Henry at this point probably would have been within his rights to have Robert executed and it might have put him out of the way for good. But there was, there was a code of chivalry and it was considered particularly bad form to execute a member of a royal family. So Henry spared Robert and imprisoned him. In some ways, perhaps Robert might have preferred being executed because he spent the rest of his life in various prisons, bemoaning his fate, wishing he was old enough to die. And eventually he was in his early 80s when he died in the prisons of Cardiff Castle. Apparently he spent his last few months trying to learn Welsh which, as any Englishman can tell you, 
is completely impossible. So that was the sad and fairly mundane end to Robert. Uh, Henry was in a reasonably firm position on the throne because somebody else who he defeated at the Battle of Tanchebray was Edgar Atheling. You may remember Edgar. He was considered the only surviving uh, member of the Saxon royal family who had a claim on the throne. And many English earls had uh, declared him to be king on Edward the Confessor's death in 1066. But then with the threat of William invading, Edgar was never crowned and Harold Godwinson was crowned instead, being a pretty tough warlord, which didn't end well for anyone. But Edgar carried on hanging around. He was the great-grandson of Ethelred the Unready. Um, he did have a claim to the throne. He, he had spent a long time, actually, as an advisor to Robert, and he seemed to have been a fairly canny politician, occasionally brokering deals with people. But he had a long history of trying to get his, his throne back, as it were, throwing in his lot with Robert. He thought perhaps that might help, although if Robert had come to the throne, he, it was not like he was likely to hand it over to Edgar. And Edgar often made alliances with the King of Scotland. But at this point, he was captured by Henry at the battle. And again, he could have had Edgar executed, but probably for the same reasons as he didn't kill his brother. He let Edgar survive, and Edgar sort of slightly disappears from history at this point. Nobody is quite sure where he was when he died or how old he was when he died, but he didn't really have any more bearings on English history, so you can forget all about him. Henry is on the throne, and... Unlike his uh, brother, William, was a pretty stable king. Uh, I, I think if anyone wanted to use a cliche, you'd say he was firm but fair. William was a bit of a party animal and a bit of a wild boy. It never fully got the respect of the um, ruling class, which is possibly one of the reasons that Henry found it relatively easy to take the throne after William's death. Henry ruled with an iron fist, but he was not considered to be cruel or unjust. In many ways, he was quite popular. And in fact, he reinstated quite a lot of old Saxon practices relating to the law and government, partly because they worked and partly because he wanted to secure a mandate. He was essentially playing the English card. He wanted the ordinary English people to support him not just the Norman aristocracy. So he made a big effort to appear to be like them. He had actually been born in England a couple of years after his father invaded uh, in about 1068. So he was born in England. He married um, a woman known as Matilda of Scotland. She was part Scottish, but she was also descended from Alfred the Great. So she had strong ties to the old English monarchy. And so this was seen as a union between the Normans, the Scottish, and crucially, the English. And Henry tried to, to make sure that England was stable, not least because he seemed to be quite interested in, in money. And if you have a stable country, it's easier to tax it. There's more money being generated. There's more wealth being generated. Stability is what everyone wanted. That's what the English wanted. The ordinary English just wanted to get on with their lives. Under Henry, they could do that. Henry was the last British monarch for several hundred years who died without being in debt and without having the country in debt. His finances were in the black. He was very astute with his money gathering and the way that he dealt with it all, uh, partly because he had uh, brought in an innovation from the East. Arabs, as we know, were, were greatly in advance of the West in, when it came to mathematics and science. The West were just these sort of violent warlords, but the Arabs had developed science. And one of the innovations that they had come up with was the abacus, 
I'm sure you're all familiar with that, where you have different beads on each string and it's like a very early calculator. You count up nine beads on one string and when the tenth one comes across, you swipe them to the right and pull a ten over from the line above and the line above that is the hundreds and then the thousands. So it's easy to add up and then to subtract down. And if you've ever seen someone who really knows how to work an abacus do so, it is pretty amazing seeing how fast they can do it. Uh, but it was a very useful tool. And Henry instigated his own version of this. He had this big cloth made of black and white checks, like a giant chessboard, which would be laid out on a table. And as the various dukes and lords came in with their with their taxes, their tithes, whatever, they would be laid out as checkers on the on the cloth and could easily calculate what was coming in and what was going out and what was owed. And the man in charge of the treasury became known as the Chancellor of the Exchequer because of the checkered cloth. And it is why we cash checks. Well, we don't anymore. Young people won't know what I'm talking about, except, I suppose, through the idea of the paycheck. And that all goes back to the checkered cloth that was introduced by Henry in his treasury. So you could see that he was serious about the business of being a ruler and running a country. And England did uh, prosper in his reign. He was still called away to interminable conflicts in France. There are all these surrounding counties of uh, Aquitaine and Anjou and Maine and Blois and trying to keep up with all these conflicts is 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 very difficult and 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 a, and a little bit tedious you do want to just say to them just <laughs> calm down stop it you're all wasting your time and the other way obviously of making alliances rather than uh, fighting people and forcing them to make alliances is through marriage and through marrying your daughter off is usually a good way of doing that. Uh, Henry did it with his daughter Matilda. He had two surviving official children with Matilda of Scotland, um, a son called William, who he called William Atheling or William Adling, which is this old Anglo-Saxon term meaning sort of princeling or one who was born to rule. So again, we can see him there pandering to the locals and saying, look, William is one of yours. He will be a properly English king. Henry married Matilda to Henry of Germany. They went to Italy and when he was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, she became the Empress Matilda. It was a very useful alliance, political alliance for Henry of England and Henry of Germany did it because he needed the money which he got in a dowry from Henry of England. So we will park Matilda there and she will come back later into our story. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So we come back to Henry now, who's ruling England. One of the things he did actually was set up the first English zoo 
which he built at Woodstock near Oxford, this big enclosure with exotic animals from all around the world. So things are looking pretty rosy for Henry. He's reasonably stable. He's uh, dealt with Robert. He has united properly for the first time England and Normandy into an empire and it's a fairly powerful empire. England is a good cash cow. He has this son, William Atheling, who is the heir to the throne, the golden boy who is young and handsome and charismatic and has his own entourage of, of the young noble men and, and noble women and would spend probably half the year in Normandy, half the year in England, very much like Henry. When Henry was away in Normandy, then his wife Matilda would be the ruler in England. Uh, but the, the aristocracy in England still, still thought of themselves very much as French rather than English. So they were constantly traveling backwards and forwards across the channel. There was a sort of ferry service set up, these um, boats, the snake boats, sniper, um, which were adapted from the old Viking boats. And so there was a lot of coming and, and going, and then the English court would often travel en masse from one side of the channel to the other. William the Conqueror had had his own personal captain, uh, who was Stephen Fitzerad. He had actually brought William across the channel in 1066 for the invasion and stayed as his uh, personal ship's captain for the rest of his life, very much like his own chauffeur. Stephen Fitzerard at this time had died, but his son, Thomas Fitzstephen, was a young and up-and-coming ship's captain. Just as a small aside, you may already know, but it's, 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 it's always worth knowing that the surname that starts Fitz is today seem as, as, as fairly posh, but uh, Fitz is a prefix meaning that they were illegitimate. So Thomas Fitzstephen was the illegitimate son of Stephen Fitzerard, who was presumably the illegitimate son of someone called Erard. This does pertain to Henry's story, because although he had only two surviving children by Matilda of Scotland, William Atheling and the younger Matilda, the Empress Matilda, he had at least nine illegitimate sons and 15 illegitimate daughters, many of whom had the Fitz prefix on their names. So one of his illegitimate daughters was Matilda Fitzroy. In fact, two of them were Matilda Fitzroys, and he had a, a Henry Fitzroy and various other Fitzes. So it, it wasn't really seen as being scandalous. It was sort of expected that the aristocracy, and particularly the king, would be having sex with whoever he wanted and wouldn't be ashamed of these children and they would be given important roles and, and land and whatever. And I suppose it became another sort of level of protection for the monarch to have these uh, extra aristocrats knocking about who were directly related to him. But uh, back to uh, Thomas Fitzstephen, the ship's captain, he had just built this amazing, beautiful new ship called the White Ship. It was fast and state-of-the-art. It was something like the sort of oligarch's super yacht of its time. And as Henry was preparing to uh, travel back to England with his court, Thomas Fitzstephen approached him and said it would be a huge honour if he would sail over on, on his ship, the white ship. And Henry gave him the word he would get it equipped. But Henry was in a hurry to get back. His own ship was ready to go. He said, uh, I'm going to go on ahead, but uh, why don't you take William and his friends on the white ship. I'm sure they'd enjoy that. Henry sets off from Barfleur in Normandy, taking his own small retinue, including his sister son, Stephen, Stephen of Blois, who, and one of the reasons he claimed that Stephen went on this first ship was that he had diarrhea. Now, I'm not quite sure why that would mean he needed to get off quickly, unless he was in a hurry to get back before another outburst, or perhaps he knew the best bit of railing to hang his ass over on William's ship and didn't know his way around the white ship. But for whatever reason, he had the shits and he travelled with Henry. And uh, stick that in a corner of your mind because Stephen returns to our story later on. So William and his retinue, the young elite of, of England, uh, travel on the white ship 
and it's a still night and Henry is ahead and he can hear behind him the happy shouts and the laughter from the white ship as sound travels. It's like, you know, when someone that has a, a party in the summer at a house a few doors down from yours. It always sounds like hundreds of people. The sound travels through the still night air uh, and often you find out there's only like six people. But anyway, this was a ship full of young people and Henry could hear all this noise and um, hoped that they were having a good time. It turned out that they weren't having a good time at all. It wasn't shouts of merriment and laughter. It was screams and calls for help because the white ship had hit a rock just outside Barfleur. Uh, you can still see the rock if you go up on the cliffs at Barfleur. It's out there in the water. Thomas Fitzstephen was probably drunk, trying to show off to the to the people on board. A bit like what happened with the that Italian cruise ship, the Costa Concordia, with a, a, a drunken captain showing off. Ship hits a rock and down it goes. So all these courtiers are ditched in the English Channel. It's cold, it's dark, they're wearing heavy robes. It's unlikely that any of them knew how to swim. At one point, the captain, Thomas Fitzstephen, surfaces, grabs hold of a piece of wreckage, thinks he might be okay. He sees someone nearby and says, what's happened to the Atheling? What's happened to William? Is he okay? And they say, no, he has gone down at which point Thomas lets go of the wreckage and says, in that case, I shall go down too. He knew perfectly well that if he survived, he would be horribly tortured and executed. And so down he went. In fact, down everyone goes, except there was only one survivor, a butcher, a local butcher who had jumped onto the ship just before it sailed to try and retrieve some debts that uh, the courtiers hadn't paid, got stuck on the ship, sank with it, but... Uh, was pulled from the sea the following morning, the only survivor, and he explained to everyone what had happened. But nobody had the guts to tell Henry what had happened. He got safely back to London with no news of this, and it was a couple of days before anyone could approach him. They knew how upset he'd be, and in the end they, they forced a small boy to go into his rooms and tell him. And And yes, Henry was utterly broken by this, never recovered, and never managed to create a legitimate male heir to replace William. After his wife Matilda died, he remarried, but um, he wasn't able to have any children with his new wife. So he was left with Matilda, the Empress Matilda, who had married Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes, he had nine illegitimate sons. Perhaps he could have promoted one of them. But he knew that many people would have found that unacceptable and it probably would have led to strife. But he also must have known that Matilda wasn't going to be generally accepted. He got all his uh, lords uh, and dukes together, got them all to swear that they would accept Matilda. His nephew, Stephen of Blois, was included in, in these people who would have to agree to this. And, but he was never really entirely sure about it. Four years later, he got them to do it all over again. Matilda's husband, Henry, had died. He was much older than her. She had remarried, in fact, well, Henry had caused her to remarry Geoffrey of Anjou, Anjou being one of these powerful um, neighbours of Normandy to the south, and he felt that this would help to protect his southern borders. But these families, they seem to be terribly dysfunctional. And he had constant arguments with Matilda and Geoffrey over exactly how much land and power they were actually allowed to have. So he wants Geoffrey to protect Normandy, but he fears that Geoffrey might get too big for his boots and try to take over. Towards the end of Henry's life, they were even basically at war with each other, so not on good terms at all. So that even though Henry was insisting that Matilda would rule England if he died without another male heir, things were pretty rickety. And as we shall see in the next episode, things did not go well. We were so close. England was so close to being settled, prosperous, the people being able to just get on with their lives. But this one small thing happens where William Atheling dies in the shipwreck and the whole ship of state is wrecked. 
the course of English history turned around. We'll see what happens in the next episode. But there is a bit of a clue uh, in that the fact that this series is called Willy Willy Harry Stee, not Willy Willy Harry Matilda. So stay tuned to find out what happens there. But that all happens after Henry's death, which comes about, um, he's in his 60s. He's a bit frail. Uh, he has problems with his health. And his physician tells him to be careful what he eats and to particularly to steer clear of lampreys. Uh, a, a lamprey is a sort of parasitic eel which used to be considered a great delicacy. Um, and they're absolutely disgusting creatures. Uh, look them up online. Have a look at a, a lamprey's mouth. It is ringed with these needle-sharp teeth. It looks like a, a creature from a horror film. And it basically latches itself onto a bigger fish and, and sucks their blood. But yes, they were considered a great delicacy at the time. And Henry was particularly fond of them. Henry was campaigning as ever in northern France. Uh, he was at Lyon La Forêt, November 1135. The chef where he was staying served him up some lampreys. Uh, Henry shouldn't have eaten them. He knew he shouldn't have eaten them, but he did really like a lamprey. And so he had a few. And it, it, it was a little bit like Mr. Creosote in Monty Python's Meaning of Life. And finally, your highness, a waffer-thin lamprey. Oh, sir, it is only a tiny little thin one. In the end, he ate what has since been described as a surfeit of lampreys. Too many lampreys. And he became very ill with stomach chills. And a week later, he was dead. He managed to get around him before he died, as many of his dukes as he could, to swear that they would support Matilda. But Stephen of Blois was not amongst them. And he died, having got the finances of England and the governance of England sorted and level. But he can't have died too happily. Matilda and her husband Geoffrey weren't there at his bedside because they were still in dispute with him, and that did not go well for her. And we'll see in the next episode what happens next. But before then, I'm delighted to have my guest for this episode on to talk to me in a little bit more detail about Henry, uh, the wonderful Charles Spencer. So, Charles, you've written this fantastic book, The White Ship. It's not just about the White Ship incident, it's about the whole of King Henry's life. What brought you to King Henry? What, what inspired you to, to write that book? Well, I've always liked him as a monarch. Um, I mean, the first time I came across him was when I was a child and I read an incredibly non-PC history book called Our <laughs> Island Story, which was a celebration of how wonderful Britain was between uh, the Romans and Queen Victoria dying, which I think is roughly when it was written. <laughs> and the whole chapter on Henry I, I mean, it, it, it was very um, admiring of his kingship, but that it was based around the white ship and there's this wonderful melodramatic Victorian portrait there. And I, I noticed, actually, when I went back through old history books, I, I read history at Oxford, that I, I did do uh, a lot of work on Henry I at the time. To me, Charlie, he's one of the great kings of England and uh, forgotten because he into a time frame that's taught. You know, people tend to leap from 1066 to maybe the Wars of the Roses or something or, yeah. or the Crusades. And, and he's in that sort of forgotten hinterland. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you, you mentioned that um, we say our island story. Yes. Because, you know, I, I've talked quite a lot about the sort of the view of history when I when I was a kid uh, and, and how that's changed and also how the teaching of history's changed. And as you say, it is now we the kids are taught to look at certain points in history with more in more detail. And we've lost that narrative sense of what happened when and, and, and who did what. And so lots of important figures from history have sort of been forgotten. I, I also think, I think it's to do with the way history is, because when, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly older than you, but when we were young, history was a compulsory subject, so the history teachers could just go through it, whereas mm. now they're competing against other subjects. It's an optional topic to have history in your life. So they're going to they're gonna give you Hitler and Henry VIII, because mm. that's going to pack the classroom. It's quite interesting. My, my, my youngest boy, Sydney plays a lot of computer games and there are quite a lot of them 
based on sort of historical areas like the Crusades or the wars of the Middle Ages and things. And, and he's actually picked up quite a lot of history from, from playing those games, which are very well researched. Oh, that's well done. I like that. <laughs> it's a bit of a backdoor entry to history, but as long as they're getting it. Well, exactly. It doesn't matter how yeah. it comes to me. And, and, you know, this series is unashamedly old fashioned. It's it's a narrative history going through the kings in order. So, I mean, what was it particularly, you know, you say you felt that Henry was a good king. There's this concept of a good king and a bad king and what makes a good king. What is it about Henry you think make, made him a good king? Well, I, I think you have to judge it by the criteria of the time. And probably the most important thing a king could give to his subjects was peace. And Henry I was incredibly uh, strong-willed. You know, you have to remember he was, he was really very fortunate to grab the opportunity to become king. Uh, he had three elder brothers, two of whom died in hunting accidents, and one had happened to be away on crusade when he seized the throne. You know, William Rufus was shot during a hunting accident in 1100. Uh, Henry, the fourth son of William the Conqueror, then gallops to Winchester, collects the treasury, and then goes on to be crowned in London, in Westminster Abbey, and um, sets about what is really a very opportunistic kingship. So I think having done that, it shows the stamp of the man. He was a brave man who took opportunities. But he brought about very quickly, within six years, he brought about peace in England, complete peace. He was always at ease with his in-laws in Scotland. He married a Scottish princess. He had various problems with the Welsh, but that was, that was sort of to be expected. And he crushed the French. So that was good. And in, in terms of the economy, he had a firm grasp of how important the economy was. And he um, had those people who were stupid enough to mess around with his coinage. They, they had terrible punishments inflicted on them, um, hands cut off, castration, that sort of thing. And that tended to concentrate <laughs> that's what on we, That's what we want from our monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say he was probably a fairly horrifying human being, but we're judging him as king. Um, yes. He had no sense of humour. Uh, William the Conqueror had a limited sense of humour. Um, <laughs> we we know that uh, he didn't enjoy being teased that his mother was a, a tanner's daughter, you know, a leather treater's daughter. <laughs> and there was one siege where William the Conqueror was waiting outside. And the very overconfident uh, defenders started uh, draping bits of leather over and taunting him about the humble roots <laughs> of his mother. They had the misfortune to fall into his hands and, and they were terribly mutilated and killed. And... <laughs> Equally with Henry the First, he 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 was um, what's popularly known as a bit of a shagger. You know, he had endless, uh, at least two dozen illegitimate children. And um, somebody, a young courtier, made the mistake of making a ditty about his sexual shenanigans, and he ended up being sentenced to being um, blinded and castrated. And actually, out of terror of that, he managed to kill himself by banging his head against the cell wall overnight before his execution. So <laughs> you didn't mess around with these Normans. Um, so he, he, were, did, were... he, he didn't have a court jester then? Ah, interestingly, there was a sort of court jester. And after the white ship went down, in which he, uh, Henry I lost his only legitimate male heir and some of his other children and all his, a lot of his favourites, etc., the court jester, a man called Rahir, found he was sort of out of a job because nobody was laughing at court. Everyone had lost someone. And he went to Rome and had caught malaria and had a vision from one of the apostles that he would spare his life, Rahir's life, if he went back to London and built a hospital and a church. And that was St. Bartholomew who appeared in the vision. Oh. And that's why we got St. Bart's church and hospital oh, from, on, um, from the white ship. So I there was one, that. but he was only temporarily needed. Yeah, there weren't a, no, there weren't a lot of lulls. <laughs> uh, at the time. I mean, you know, it's fascinating that you can come out with this stuff. I mean, I have to admit, I am not a historian. My research for this series has been very superficial. I've got to cover, you know, a thousand years. Um, and, you know, if anyone listening wants to know in more detail, they can go to Wikipedia and yes. be more of an authority than I am. But, you know, so where, where, where did you go to to get, to get your sources? Well, I was very lucky, actually, because normally I cover the, the civil wars and there's endless sources, and most of them are completely prejudiced. So in this case, <laughs> there are nine religious sources. It tended to be people in uh, monasteries who wrote right. at the time and the wherewithal and, and the literacy to write down things. 
my there's one um norman uh monarch uh, sorry a monk who started life in shropshire and was sent to be in a, a monastery in um in normandy he's called orderic vitalis oh, yes. and because he was english in normandy he tended to record in huge detail the stuff that was going on in england he was so intrigued so he was incredibly useful to me all the way through to the anglo-saxon chronicle which is a sort of very rough guide to what was going on in various years um but what what you have to deal with charlie is is the, the problem is that every one of these chroniclers sees everything from God's perspective. So yes. if somebody, you know, if the son of the king drowns in a ship, well, then that son and the king must have done something wrong. So it's incredibly moralistic and judgmental. Mm. They're not clear histories. They are religious histories of, of, of what was going on at the time. And how much did you feel you were able to kind of extrapolate out of that? Because the white ship is, is you know, it, it, it is a narrative history. You're telling a story there, bringing yeah. it to life. Yeah, I am a narrative historian. I'm not an academic one. Um, so what I want to do, what, what, what I wanted to do with Henry I, Henry I is the tragic hero of this book. It's really his biography um, uh, split in two by the, the worst tragedy of his life. Mm. You know, one of the things a king had to do, this is the one thing I'd put against him, and it's not his fault. But one of the things a king in the Middle Ages had to do was provide a secure succession. And yes. he only had one legitimate male heir that survived. He might have had a younger son too, we're not sure, but he didn't survive. And um, this is it's such an interesting point of uh, English and Norman history, this, because whereas William the Conqueror was illegitimate, uh, known to people at the time as William the Bastard, and he could become Duke of Normandy and he could become King of England with the Pope's blessing, there was a lot going on at the papacy at this time, and it was absolutely unacceptable by the time Henry I was on the throne from 1100 uh, for anyone illegitimate to be considered eligible. So you end up with everything riding on the back of the one heir. And when he drowns at sea, uh, Henry tries very hard to persuade his Norman and English lords and bishops that uh, couldn't they please make his daughter a successor, Matilda? Yeah. Um, but that's really not uh, in there. They don't understand that. You know, it's such a time that, that women can't be seen as rulers. And it's not mm. just straight misogyny, although that plays a part. Uh, this was a time when kings were expected to lead soldiers into battle and yeah. they, nobody could countenance a queen doing that. But, but, you know, I mean, by the time Henry dies, he's essentially at war with Matilda. Yes. Um, he can, do you think he really kind of believed that they would stick to this oath that they would they would put her on the throne well it's very interesting people were terrified of henry the first you know mm. he was absolutely known for ruthlessness and celebrated for it there's a there's a painting from the time of him having 50 50 robbers hanged at once and this was thought marvelous <laughs> um so people knew you couldn't mess around with him you know if there's going to be a biography of henry the first i think it would be russell crowe in his <laughs> grisliest form playing him um, and so when Henry insisted, first in Northampton and then at, at his castle and then and then in Normandy, that everyone swear to acknowledge his daughter as his successor, everyone agreed it, but nobody really meant it. Henry I believed they meant it. And in a way, he wanted even, her just... You know, even though from his own family history, he must have known how slippery and, and uh, power was and how hard to hang on to it and particularly after you've gone. Yes, that's a very interesting point. I, I'm fascinated by the way these men went from being omnipotent to absolutely zero on death. Yeah. There's a scene of William the Conqueror on his deathbed with everyone just basically waiting for him to die. He got a very nasty blow in the stomach from a saddle yeah. uh, when in a battle. And as soon as he's dead, all of the important people in the, in the dukedom rush off to protect their interests. And the servants just strip him, take all his uh, jewellery off him, all his finery, and just disappear. And then he just becomes this sort of bloated corpse that everyone has to just get rid of. And the same with William Rufus, when he's shot and left on the uh, the, the ground in the New Forest, dead. Yeah. Um, he's just slung over a mule and taken back by a couple of servants. And, and, and where, do you, where do you stand on that, the, of whether Henry had him bumped off or whether it really was an accident? Well, I think it's... You know, what's interesting is at the time, nobody suspected Henry, but he was there and he had the most to gain. The man who was um, suspected at the time ran away, as he would, 
Um, but even on his deathbed, people tended to be very honest on their deathbed because they're expecting to be judged as to whether they're going yeah. to heaven or hell. He denied it. I think it was probably an accident and nobody knew how it happened. You know, it probably was an arrow glancing off a tree or off the side mm. of a stag or something. Um, but, you know, Henry was, didn't hang around to look after his brother's body. He was on his way to become king. So, yeah, it looks very suspicious, but um, nobody at the time seemed to think it was Henry. Well, I mean, you know, there are all these fantastic stories from the period, which we all knew, you know, at school in the 60s, you're kind of taught all this stuff, but modern yes. people don't. But, you know, we were talking about, you know, history and how it's taught. There is a, a huge interest in in history in this country. There are a lot of TV shows, there are a lot of podcasts. You have a new podcast, don't you? Rabbit Hole Detectives. Yes, with, and that's um, history. People love history. You're absolutely right, Charlie. And this is why this is, you know, a, 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 a good podcast, because you're taking people actually have a thirst for the stories. And and if you look at even the, the fictional versions of the Middle Ages with hmm. the fantastical elements, such as obviously Game of Thrones, people, and, and then the Viking series and all that, people love a bit of blood and guts, really. I think that's yeah. what it is. And power and sex and all of that, yeah. you know. And Henry and think, the First had a lot of power and a lot of sex. <laughs> and he was very clever. With uh, This is a totally different era. Even though his two dozen illegitimate children couldn't succeed to the throne, they were very useful pawns. He married them off to people uh, as part of alliances uh, around yeah. Europe. And I think also, I think it's partly because in the last few years, there has been a return to narrative history with a lot of bestsellers. I mean, I, I became aware of your book because I saw it everywhere in the bookshops. It, it, it was a bestseller and it was an area of history that I was increasingly fascinated in. We've had Mark Morris on the series earlier on talking about the Anglo-Saxons. Again, I, yeah. his book was there very prominently displayed in, in the bookshops and their history magazines. And obviously, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook have their Rest is History podcast, which is one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. And you have a podcast of your own now, don't you, Charles? Well, I, like you, Charlie, I, I realise that people do enjoy a bit of history in their podcast. So uh, the Reverend Richard Coles, who's an old friend of mine and, and was a neighbour, and Dr. Pat Jarman, who's from Digging for Britain, and she's a Norwegian archaeologist. We have this podcast called Rabbit Hole Detectives, where we set each other a historical knowledge uh, question each week. And then we have to come back and entertain and inform the other two uh, mm. with anecdotes. And we're allowed to go off in various directions, hence the rabbit hole name. But it's terrific fun for me to be chatting with friends. And if the listener enjoys it, that's a huge bonus. So to get back to Henry, he does appear to have cared about the relationship between the monarchy and the people of England. I mean, do you think he was genuinely sympathetic to them or was he just playing the English card? Because he did seem to respect the English and some of their customs. Yes, I, well, I think he was very pragmatic, Henry I. And he, the, one of the reasons he married a princess from Scotland was because she had ancient English blood in her, going back to Alfred mm -hmm. the Great and all that sort of thing. And that was a very popular move uh, in terms of, you know, we're a generation on, you've had William the First, had William the Second, and now you've got a, a, a king who's prepared to produce an heir with English blood in, in, inside its veins. So he, he was clever and he, he did. He sort of went back looking at the Anglo-Saxon laws and brought in a, a, a code of law that lent partly on them. So yeah, he was conciliatory, but I don't I don't think he liked the Anglo-Saxons particularly, <laughs> but he, he he didn't want trouble at home, so he pacified them by by giving them the odd concession here and there. So he he was a smart politician. He was a very smart politician. He was uh, also a great warrior. You know, he was in the front there were two great battles, one in 1106 that won him Normandy from his rather hopeless brother, Robert Curthouse, and then one in 1119 when he crushed the French. And he was in, you know, he's right in there, as you were expected to be at this time. Um, and, and in the second one, he had three of his sons in, in, the, in, in the battle line with him. Um, he, he ticks a lot of the boxes for what you want from a medieval monarch. And, and actually, it's showcased by the uselessness of his elder brother, Robert Curthouse, who was Duke <laughs> of Normandy. Uh, there was total chaos in Normandy, and people hated him for that. And then equally, the man who followed Henry I, I'm sure you'll deal with, uh, is King Stephen. Absolutely lovely chap. Everyone liked him, very charming, could talk to anyone from any background, but too soft, 
you know, when he had a chance early in his reign to crush some people, he let them all go. And, and the barons sort of looked at each other, you know, who on earth is in charge? This is no good. <laughs> you should have done a spoiler alert there for what happens in the next episode. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think it's abundantly clear, you know, because of this idea that, that Henry believed that they would accept Matilda, that it, we know she's not going to be accepted. And you know, the, the I, sad I, thing about this is that Matilda was incredibly able. Um, she had married the Roman emperor um, uh, and had done a good job. You know, he was he was looking after all sorts of uh, territories in in central and northern Europe. And when he was away, she stood in for him as a young wife uh, in in terms of uh, you know looking at court cases, etc., and did a very good job. But it was just impossible for the Anglo-Normans to consider giving ultimate power to to such a woman. Henry the First was. Uh, Definitely in the forefront. I'd put him in the top ten of English monarchs. Um, but of course, who would you put he's at not number even one? Thought of. Sorry. Who would you put at number one? Well, I suppose probably I, it would be one of the the queens. Probably. I mean, I, in the top ten, you. I mean, I, I'd ha you'd have Elizabeth the first, Victoria, yeah. probably Elizabeth the second, actually. And then um, it depends what you're looking for at any particular time. Henry the second was a great king. Uh, but if you look at him, he was the grandson of Henry I, actually. Uh, but he was very much... Henry I's greatest failure was letting the uh, crown of England go to pretty much an alien culture. So when it went to Henry II, it went from the Normans to one of their, to the Angevins, who are pretty much their, among their greatest enemies. Uh, and then we, as a country, get completely sidetracked because of the uh, various concerns of the dynasty from Anjou, we get dragged into all sorts of very European fights. Yeah. Henry I kept everything very local. He didn't look to go beyond England and Normandy. Uh, but once we went down to the Plantagenets, um, they, they had many different interests around Europe, and that meant that England got torn in mm. all sorts of directions. And, I, you know, I hate to play the sort of what-if game, but how would... British history have been different if the white ship hadn't sunk and if William had taken the throne? I think two things would have been different. I think we, assuming he lived anyway, you know, and that's what we're assuming. Yes. Um, and had heirs. I think we would have remained more of a uh, a wealthy but windswept island off uh, in the North Sea, uh, more self-contained, just dealing with France. But by being hooked into the whole Plantagenet interest, we ended up being involved in such things as the Hundred Years' War, or all of the um, the warfare of the um, uh, the Middle Ages that we're familiar with. We were hooked into in a very big way. I think we'd have had more skirmishes with France rather than that sort of life and death struggle for over a hundred mm. years. And then at the same time, it's quite possible the Reformation would have happened at a very different time. We could easily have had it earlier. We could have been in with the Scandinavians and 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 and, and have a uh, less of a Henry VIII driven change than actually one that would happen by being part of Northern Europe. So I think things would have been hugely different, um, and I think they would have probably been more. We would have been more insular generally. And Henry did try to produce another male heir, didn't he? I mean, after his first wife Matilda of Scotland, um, she died, didn't she? Not, not, not in suspicious circumstances. We actually don't know. She died of an illness in 1118. But literally within three months of Henry losing his son in the white ship, he was remarried to a young beauty. She was known as the Fair Maid of Brabant. And she was kept very much at his side. It's interesting that a man who had so many children um, through his reign, uh, his second marriage was blessed with none. Uh, and it's nothing to do with her, because after Henry I died... Um, from eating too many lampreys, an unusual way to go. Uh, she remarries and has half a dozen children of her own. So whether he was depressed or unwell or impotent or whatever, um, we don't know. But he, he, crucially, he couldn't have any more uh, children with his wife. And it, and it really would have been impossible for him to elevate one of his illegitimate sons. Yes, he had a fantastic son who was his eldest illegitimate son, probably born in about 1090, so 10 years before he actually got married first time who was the Earl of Gloucester, uh, an amazing warrior, very much in the stamp of his own grandfather, William the Conqueror. Um, but he, all he could do was um, support 
his half-sister Matilda when it came to her battles after mm. Henry I. There was no concept that he could have become king, although he had all the attributes of a great medieval monarch. Well, yeah, I mean, it it is all history, but particularly you look at the history of the monarchs, there are so many of these sort of unexpected incidents, accidents, whatever, where, where suddenly well, the, the whole of history you, shifts. If you go back to your earlier, if I can go back to your earlier question about what would have happened if yeah. um, the William, the Prince on the White Ship had survived. Well, it's, uh, it's extraordinary for us to think there would have been no Richard I, Henry V, or any of these, <laughs> or, or Queen Elizabeth II. They wouldn't have happened because it would have been a completely parallel universe that we, we, we can't even imagine, really. There's a possible alternative history fantasy series to be written there. <laughs> yeah, but I do I do hope people look into Henry I and appreciate him again. It's quite interesting how history as a subject goes round and round. When I read Winston Churchill's account of the history of the English-speaking people, when he touches on the story of the white ship, he apologises for bringing up such a hackneyed subject because it was so well known <laughs> 100 years ago. But now, I, I mean, I, I, I wrote the book on, on this because I went to a a history conference and gave a speech on Queens of England and touched on the white ship and everyone sort of looked at each other didn't know what I was talking about so it's it's fascinating yeah. the trends of history have been unkind to Henry the first and it's it really isn't because I've written about him that I want people to look at him it's because he he's extraordinarily worthy in his own right there's a strong possibility that we know where his body is it it, it seems to be in where you'd expect it to be near the altar of the original Reading Abbey which is in in, in terrible shape because it was blown up in the Civil War. Mm. And there is a plaque saying Henry Beauclerk, which was his nickname, is buried near here. And I went to the school where it's buried, where he's buried, and they didn't want anything to do with him being exhumed. I wrote to Westminster Abbey and I said, look, if we do find him, could you bury him here uh, with you? And they went, well, not really. We haven't got room. And I was thinking, <laughs> my God, you know, this is one of the first people to be crowned at Westminster Abbey. He's, he is honestly, one of the greats. Um, but because he's he's got no brand value, Charlie, that's the thing, um, because he's just unfashionable. Yeah. yeah, when I first came across the White Ship story, which was not long before I, I saw your book, um, I was reading another history book and it sort of touched on it. I, I did think this is a, a fascinating and, and, and very moving story. You know, that we, we have this idea that um, extremely rich people or, or kings and queens, you know, they don't experience tragedy the same way as an ordinary person does. You know, if they lose a son or something, it's, well, they're rich, it doesn't matter. But... I think that's the truth. You know, with narrative history, well, what I try and do is remind readers that these people are exactly the same as us. They yeah. may be from a few hundred years ago, but they do have the loves, the tragedies, and the triumphs that we experience today, just in a different form. But it's the same. We're the same species. We have the same emotions. And... You know, I think you're absolutely spot on with that. It's it's really important to remember these aren't just names from the past. These were people from the past. Yeah, and he, he does seem to have genuinely been completely devastated by it, as, as you would. Yeah, it was a double devastation for Henry. The personal devastation was huge. He lost not just his heir, but two other children, and as I say, lots of people he really cared about. Um, and then at the same time, this absolute skewering of, He'd had 20 years on the throne, building it all up to a crescendo mm. by beating the French and, and settling everything. And then he loses the future. The future goes down in, in the ship, in, in the shape of his son. So, mm. yeah, it is a tragedy. And, and Henry, Henry ends up, I think, hugely unhappy. People say, you know, the chroniclers say he never smiled in the remaining 15 years of his life. Well, of course he did. But I'm sure his <laughs> demeanour was one of darkness and pain. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note... <laughs> I can thank, cheer up any podcast. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Charles. And I can't recommend highly enough your book, The White Ship, to anyone who wants to find out more about this fascinating period in history. Thank you, Charlie. So that was Henry I and Charles Spencer. And next week, I'll be talking you through what happened after Henry died and discussing his fascinating daughter, Matilda, with my guest historian, the wonderful Helen Castor. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.